My podcast friends, today's show is brought to you by Ringer University, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Whether you are a Bruin, a Buckeye, or a Blue Devil, if you like college football, join the Ringers, Ben Glixman, Roger Sherman, and Chris Vernon. Shout out Verno! As they serve up insights, picks, and predictions week to week. Ringer University also features Teed Up, our college basketball podcast where Mark Titus and Tate Frazier give their expert analysis and keep you up to date on the latest college hoops news. So please subscribe and listen to Ringer University, available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, my podcast pals, we are back. Welcome to another episode of House of Carbs, the food podcast for the hungry people by the hungry people. I am your hungry host, Joe House. Thank you for all of the continued input, feedback, suggestions, pictures, so on and so forth. A quick note about last week's show, we featured barbecue, a wonderful discussion with a bunch of ringer pals. We started with David Shoemaker and Brian Curtis talking about their Texas roots, and then we had a long chat with our good pal Danny Chow, who gave us the live version of his article that he wrote about Charleston. I want all the podcast pals out there to know that was not an exhaustive barbecue listing. That was merely a conversation among friends about our own barbecue interests and pursuits. We promise North Carolina, Kansas City, Memphis, that we're going to hit all of your barbecue joints. Don't you worry. All the barbecue all over this great country of ours is going to get covered. A lot of it's going to be eaten, and we will have experts from all barbecue walks of life on House of Carbs. Let there be no doubt. Today's show is a great one. We have another couple Ringer Insider pals. Editor-in-Chief Sean Fennessy is on this week with a five-course delicious food movie meal you're wanting to fill your Sunday nights after Game of Thrones season. Let's go ahead and fill it with a little bit of food movie. Uh, Many food movies. We cover five, Sean and I. There's also a great conversation this week with Amanda Dobbins about the Hillstone Houston's franchise. Amanda worked at, I think it was a Houston's when she was 17 years old, so we cover that. Of course, there's food news as well. So without further ado, let's get in that belly with Sean Fennessy. All right, podcast pals, as you know, here at The Ringer, the food enthusiasm runs deep, but it also runs broad. Now, we've covered many wonderful food uh, topics, including things to eat, places to visit. One thing that we haven't yet covered, food movies. As a matter of fact, and as it would happen, we are very lucky 
to have here today with us, editor-in-chief at The Ringer, host of the wonderful podcast, The Big Picture. Also, occasional appearances on The Watch with Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan. Sean Fennessy, how are you, buddy? Joe House, what a pleasure. Here we go. I, I have we, We've never done a podcast together. That's true. Out of all the time, we, like we, I never in, invited myself. Most of the time I get to do podcasts with other Ringer peeps is because I invite myself. That's not, you know, that's not true. You are the most desired guest on every show on this network. How dare you? That's very flattering. And that's exactly the way to get into my heart and my belly. So speaking of belly, Sean Fennessy, how about this fantastic array? Now, this is the thing, right? We, we uh, hear it. House of carbs. Wow, I'm vibrating right now. <laughs> we, 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 uh, we like to think of things in, in the way of, of, of a delicious menu. And here today, you have prepared for us, I'm going to call it a, a prefix, a wonderful arrangement or an array of, of food movies that we're going to go through and talk about why you've selected them, what particular aspects of these food-based movies um, appeal to you. I, my own self, have seen, I would say, four out of, of the five movies, so mm-hmm. I feel like there's a little familiarity. I know what kind of taste I have in my mouth as it relates to these movies, but I want to know about your taste and why you selected these movies. So if you're okay with this, let's just run through them. Let's dive in. Let's let's do an amuse-bouche course to start. The right? amuse-bouche, exactly right. I think that is the movie Chef. Chef. Let's talk about Chef. Yeah. Chef is a, a small film made by John Favreau, who you may know from his role in Swingers, who you may know from directing Iron Man. Yeah. Perhaps uh, The Jungle Book. What He's I- a major Hollywood deal. Why did he make this small movie called Chef? Because if you've seen John Favreau, you know he loves food. God bless him. Fat John Favreau. Yes. God bless him. There are two of them, one of which is, uh, you know. Skinny John Favreau and Fat John Favreau. Exactly. Yeah. So. With regard to Fat John Favreau, you know, the guy loves food. Chef is a movie essentially about a chef, naturally, who was making prefix menus at a sort of Michelin-starred restaurant in a major city in America who essentially had gone through the many stages that these chefs go through. House, you know what this is like for these guys. There's a lot of pressure to innovate. There's a lot of pressure to surprise critics, to keep audiences coming one year, two years, three years after they have shown what they can do. Absolutely. Naturally, his character, after a certain amount of time, flames out, as many chefs do. Yeah. And what happens when he flames out? Quits the restaurant. Quits the restaurant biz altogether. Sure. Heads out. Buys an old truck, okay. refurbishes the truck with his son, and makes that truck a food truck and rediscovers his love for food. Hey, now. A little hokey. The movie is a little bit sentimental. Yeah. But watching John Favreau make grilled cheese sandwiches inside of a truck is more dazzling than watching maybe even our pal David Chang work in his massive, beautiful kitchen. I, my mouth is open right now. Just, I, I, I'm just a little think bit, of it. Yeah, it, I, I, I am imagining it, and it's uh, something that I'm finding very appealing. Yeah, artisanal grilled cheese has the has a high douche potential. <laughs> but... It really, it, it does. It's a hard, uh, you know, there, there, there are lots and lots of purveyors of, of grilled cheese sandwiches. There's a wonderful place in Portland, Oregon that Bill Simmons and I I believe, had uh, the, the privilege of, of enjoying it. And I think it's called the grilled cheese. Make to- makes total sense. I mean, yeah. in Los Angeles, we have the melt just down the block from us. Sure. Um, I think the thing about this movie is it is obviously, it does a thing that a lot of food movies, I think, do that makes me annoyed, which is oh. it prizes the power and artistry of the chef 
in a way that is not very interesting. You had Chang on this show a yes. couple of weeks ago yeah. talking about the movie Burns, and clearly that movie <laughs> chafed him. Yes. Um, I think there are a lot of movies. No Reservations is another movie like this that is really kind of obsessed with valorizing what it is that chefs do and not really connecting people to food, but connecting them to these, like, tortured figures. Yep. There's a little bit of the tortured figure thing in Chef, but Chef is really has this great Latin soundtrack and has John Favreau whipping up greasy, beautiful truck food. That's it. That's all I need. Uh, what, what's what, a what's, great what's bad about that? And, and a great soundtrack and grilled cheese sandwiches. I'm in. Perfect amuse bouche. Let's move on. The next movie on our list: Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Now, I had not heard of this movie uh, until you introduced me to it. I actually wa- watched it recently. Um, with my family, with both my wife and my child. Uh, and I have to tell you, it was it was many things. I had many emotions, but let me hear from you why you chose it. This is a nice starter course because sushi um, is a surprisingly wonderful uh, appetizer. Uh, I, I myself in, enjoyed a wonderful summer dinner this year where the folks, it was a catered dinner, and what they walked around with in terms of an appetizer off the off of a shared plate was was sushi. That's Great very idea. smart. I wish more people did that, Me frankly. Too. You know, I'm a full-blown Angelino now, five-plus years here, so I I live and die by sushi. Yeah. Um, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, I would say, is not just one of the best food movies of the last 10 years. I think it's straight up one of the best movies of the last 10 years. Incredible. Here's why. A documentary made by a man named David Gelb about... A man named Jiro, Jiro Ono, a 85-year-old sushi master mm-hmm. who has his own Michelin three-star restaurant that seats only 10 people. And this is an 85-year-old man who has dedicated his entire life to rice and fish and making that taste good. And that's the whole movie. The whole movie is explaining how he has worked at this and how he has passed this business on to his two sons. And the way that the sushi is shot is pornography. And that's a word that we hear about food all the time. Right. It's often misstated or overstated. That's right. In, in this case. In this instance. You want to eat this sushi immediately. And you want to thank Jiro for preparing the sushi. You know, the experience that he creates in his restaurant is very intimate, not just because of the 10 seats, but because he is right in front of you and he is balling that rice and he is cutting and preparing that fish for you in real time, the way they do in many sushi restaurants. But in this instance, it has this sort of transportive. It's almost, and I think his restaurant is essentially next to a subway tunnel. Yes. So there's this this uh, subterranean feeling you right. get where you're in this this different a new universe. That's right. Um, and so interestingly, David Gelb, uh, he made this film, which I think if this movie were made ten years ago, not many people would see it. It would get good notices from critics, and then it would just kind of go on. And if you catch a blockbuster, great. This movie went to Netflix. Mm-hmm. It found a real audience on Netflix. It yeah. had a phenomenal poster. It's like It was a classic. Like My wife turned to me and she was just like, this movie looks like it's about sushi. We should watch this. I've watched many bad food documentaries with my wife on okay. Netflix. Okay. But this was not one of them. The ones that they usually run are like fat, sick, and nearly dead. And they tell you about why the food industry is killing America. This movie goes in the other direction. So Gelb obviously had great success. And then what happens is Netflix realizes that Jiro's a hit and they want to be in the Gelb business. So they create a little show called Chef's Table. And who oversees Chef's Table? David Gelb. Oh, wow. So that show that has shown us, you know, the inner workings of so many great chefs and has had a couple of seasons and is one, I think, one of Netflix's most popular shows is all born of Jiro Dreams of Sushi. It has I, this legacy. I didn't know. I am a devotee, obviously, of Chef's Table. I had no idea of this origin story. Yeah. Now, let me tell you, let me share with you some of the emotion that I felt that we haven't touched on because— sure. I don't. I don't think that I would tell people that this is necessarily um, an uplifting movie. Mm-hmm. 
it's an in, in incredibly intellectually stimulating movie. And the two elements of the movie that um, that I was left with, in addition to wanting to get to Tokyo by any means necessary Me as, as well. quickly as possible, there's a family story to it that's a pretty incredible family story and in many respects sad. And I don't think, you know, there's no reason to sugarcoat it. Uh, I, I don't, you know, we don't see in over the course of, of the movie um, any indication of, you no, know, Jiro has two sons, and the two sons have both, you know, followed in his father's footsteps. One son is going to take over the business from Jiro whenever Jiro passes, uh, and I hope he, you know, I I'm believe he's still with wood. us. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, and the other son uh, went off and, and started his own father-sanctioned sushi restaurant, but it's his own standalone thing. Um, the relationship of the boys with their father and the relationship of the boys to each other is all very interesting. It is. Uh, and it's all very much, it makes a whole lot of sense when you hear Jiro himself talk about the relationship he had with his own father and the hard life that Jiro experienced himself um, as, as a youth. Basically, you know, was, was uh, uh, you know, his, his mother was out of the scene very early in his youth and his dad uh, died when he was nine years old. Um, and Jiro was basically forced to go work. He had to go fend for himself at a very early stage in life. And he found his way to this pursuit and then it became his life's work. And, uh, the, the, the quiet beauty of the movie to me is how, what a satisfying life he built for himself from, from that mo- ultra desperate moment. You know what's interesting? I think the way that you describe that is perfect and beautiful and also a little bit depressing because I think this movie is very emotional for those of us who identify as workaholic, disciplined people who are like, I need to succeed at the thing I have chosen. And it's this movie is very much, he, he conveys that to his two sons. And there are not very, very many moments where Jiro seems particularly happy. That's right. Uh, exactly right. Uh, but he, you he, know that he is making people happy because we see it in real time in the movie. And that's, there's a fascinating contrast between those two things. You know what I mean? He is, he is uh, and I'm sure um, there's a, a, a way of, descri- a Japanese way of describing mm-hmm. this. He gets life satisfaction from the pursuit of, of the excellence. That's right. Uh, and, um, you know, the thing that, that you just <laughs> mentioned, after the movie, my wife punched me. And so why did you watch, make me watch this sad movie? <laughs> because at the end of it, you don't feel necessarily uplift. Um, you wonder about, you know, the, the, the life that, the, that has been chosen for the boys. That they've, and These are middle-aged men. Um, do they, are they happy? Are they, you know, do they have kids? What's their relationship with their own? What's going on in their lives? Now, that's, maybe that's a, a Western spin that's not appropriate. Um, but the sushi is is incredible, and you know the story's incredible. They seem tortured by their own pursuits, which I, I think a lot of people can relate to that. I agree with you. Okay, that that Jiro is incredible. Thank you for introducing course, me to it. My pleasure. Let's move on to something. Not not that Jiro wasn't substantive, but we also were we're moving on in 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 the in the in the menu. We need to get some more protein in the a mix. little more protein. The trip. Tell me about the. Tell trip. you what, actually, the trip might be our pasta course. Oh, okay, wonderful. The trip uh, is well-timed, as we noted before we recorded this podcast, because the third installment in the trip movie series is out in August. It's called The Trip to Spain. Um, But the original movie, which I I guess is sort of a TV series but was recut for American audiences as a movie, uh, is a 2010 thing courtesy of 
Rob Brydon, who's a famous British comedian, the director Michael Winterbottom, who mm. some people may know, and Steve Coogan, who I think a lot of more Americans know. This is a very weird experiment of a movie. I'll try my best to clarify what the hell they were trying to do. <laughs> I'm laughing because I love it. It makes me laugh. It's kind of, I mean, it is outright funny. It it's is. maybe the funniest active film series, but Steve Coogan and Rob Ryden ostensibly are friends, but they have a little bit of a frenemy relationship. I think that's how it is in real life. It certainly is it with these two versions of themselves in the movie. Yeah. And Steve Coogan's character, quote unquote, has been called by a newspaper to take a tour of country England and taste food at the finest restaurants in the country. He needs a friend. He needs a partner. He needs a foil on this journalistic slash uh, experiential trip. He calls Rob Bryden, his frenemy. He gets him to agree to go. And then they go on this quest. And what do they do? They go to hotels and then they go to restaurants and then they eat and then they talk to each other. And we see how they hate each other or love each other. And then they do impressions of famous people. And that's the whole movie. Isn't isn't the uh, the part of the setup premise that um, originally um, the protagonist imagined taking – it was supposed to be romantic, yes. right? Isn't there – isn't yes. that – He was going to be a partner, but Steve Coogan finds himself at the end of a relationship. Yes. And so because of that – or a complicated moment in a relationship. And so because of that, he decides to ask a friend. He asks a pal to essentially go on a romantic – what would yes. be appropriate for, for a romantic yes. tour. So they find themselves at all these elegant white tablecloth restaurants. You see the movie is basically cut interspersed between shots of these two guys talking and drinking white wine. Yeah. In, with in, interiors of kitchens and flames, uh, you know, emitting from the top of the stove and, you know, seeing food shaking around in a, in a, uh, in a pan. And it's just a really weird movie with like no momentum, but also I feel like it ends in, in five minutes too early. And it's something that I bet you could really relate to because you are a world-class conversationalist and a world-class eater. And like that is really the essence of this movie. That's too nice of you. But um, it, it is something I can relate to in the sense that, that those are the, the two, two, what you're always looking for in an eating experience is somebody that is going to enjoy it as much as you think you're going to enjoy it and somebody that you can share that enthusiasm and enjoyment with. And that's why I think the trip is brilliant it, because it starts from a place where it feels like you could it could be slapstick, right? Oh, they're at this this hotel and it's got chenille and it's got, you know, these these beautiful sheets and they're at the white tablecloth and, oh, my gosh, this, this could be, you know, uh, Three's Company uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in... in, in uh, in, in Chablis, but it's not. Uh, they play it straight. They I mean, play it straight. They play it straight. Aside from doing their versions of Michael Caine over and over and over again in the movie, they're playing this movie pretty st- – and they're actually like emotional notes. You know, there are times where you see Steve Coogan's character be unfaithful to his girlfriend and then you have to reckon with, do I still love this yeah, guy? Yeah, I like him. And, I, yeah, why'd he just do that? Yeah. That dick. It's confusing and right. it's great. And, you know, they, and so they, they did it again in 2014 with the trip to Italy and now they're doing it again with Spain and – it's weird that this has become a franchise. It might, it's a very strange franchise. It's a weird franchise, uh, but it, but it works. And by the way, I kind of want to live it. You know, I know. I, I kind of want to do my trip. I know. I, I'll be honest. I just came back from a trip to Europe myself. Oh. And there were there were now. Granted, I was there with my wife, but yeah. but I there I wanted to recapture that feeling. You yeah. Know? Not not of the unfaithfulness, but certainly of the like enjoying food <laughs> and gl- hanging out. And, <laughs> Good. I'm <know>. glad. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, on that note, <laughs> let let us proceed. Now, this next one is another one that I have seen in my life, but it's been forever. And I was so happy um, that you put it on the menu 
because it gave me the occasion to revisit it and it it it's it's such it's a it's not a long movie so it's and it's not a hard watch i can't recommend it enough this next movie is big night big night now where on the menu was this is this a main course do we i think so we, i, th- I kind of this think is like so a too. suckling pig just it, placed it before really us it is it's i mean it it feels like it needs to be an italian style That's right. you know yeah uh, Maybe it's a catch a um, We just had, we've been doing brajoles and, and meatballs, you know, Bill's mom oh, yeah, who won't that's... share any of the recipes. Um, We're going to get those someday. You know, it, it, the, the proper thing, we'll call it the timpano because that is, you know, not to steal from the movie, but that is the, the coup de grace. That's to right. use a French term that's right. on an Italian food movie. <laughs> uh, let's talk Big Night. Big Night is, I'll tell you what, how I became to know of it. In the mid to late 90s, as Sundance culture and indie film really started to blow up and became a a highly covered thing, you know, kind of in the aftermath of Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith and guys like that, Steven Soderbergh, um, there was a lot more attention to pay to small movies like this. This is a very small movie directed by two actors, Campbell Scott and Stanley Tucci. Stanley Tucci, one of the stars of the movie. Um, And it's a movie about two Italian brothers who own a restaurant. And their restaurant is in some kind of trouble and they got to make one big meal. That's basically it. It's a heist movie with food. And the, the way that the food looks in this movie, I would say is probably better than in any movie I've ever seen. And it's bizarre to me that this is the movie that these two actors chose to do, but I'm, I'm really glad they did. And also, I don't think either of these guys ever made another movie again as directors, which I find to be kind of fascinating. Wow, Stanley Tucci has a huge resume, I'm, and gra- he never directed another movie? Great actor, but yeah, I, don't, I, don't, no, I, I don't think he ever directed another movie. But, you know, you mentioned the Timpano, and when I saw it, I was a very unsophisticated uh, Long Island kid who didn't know anything about any kind of cuisine that wasn't my mom's, frankly. Mm. And... I think that it was a, it was a little bit of a portal movie. You know, there there are portal movies that teach you things about things that you come to be interested in, and um, I think being a foodie is a is a bad word now, but it taught me some stuff about how to care about this stuff. One of the things that I I think um, is fascinating and and honestly was ahead of its time was uh, you know one of the um, driving energies of the movie is the insistence on perfection by the brother. The brother that is the chef is a truly talented chef. Stanley Tucci is the front man. He's at the, uh, he's at the door. He's, he's shaking hands. He's patting backs. He's welcoming in the guests. The brother in the kitchen is Tony Shalhoub. Tony Shalhoub. A, a wonderful Tony Shalhoub performance. It is. Is the true mastermind, the true genius, has an inspiration and insists. And we're introduced to this very early in the movie. He insists on delivering his food his way. Not the way that the guests want it, which is part of why the business is not successful. It's true. And uh, they they use as a foil a, a, bis- a business right up the street that is wildly successful that serves what uh, Tony Shalhoub's character regards as garbage, mm-hmm. uh, slop. And, and they, you know, the, re- the repeated sort of tension there. And, and uh, I don't want to steal the plot line and go through all of it, it does drive you to this wonderful moment. Again, I feel like this movie is so ahead of its time. The food is shot beautifully. It looks spectacular. And they had the, the presence in, and, and sense in terms of how they were going to deliver the guests for this, this big dinner that's supposed to save their restaurant. Everybody's experience with the food is, I mean, frankly, orgasmic. Yep. Uh, but it seems so authentic. And I wondered after, was somebody actually cooking unbelievable food 
I have read that, yes, that they ate like kings and queens every night. They, they had to. And the reason I, 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 I raise this is because the, experience, the expression that these actors the, – I, I regard these people as either the very finest actors in all <laughs> of the world or they were eating unbelievable effing food because you can't fake that. That's the only part of the movie that is real. Yeah, <laughs> how delicious the yeah, food the f- is. Their faces after they take a bite. That, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know their faces. This is why we commend the big night to all of you, House of Carbs faithful listeners. Please go see Big Night if you're into looking at glorious, luscious Italian food and watching people in, enjoy it. And the plot is pretty effing good. There's yeah. a couple twists and turns. It's a. It's a. It's a really. It's just purely a good movie. It's just if a you good just movie. like good movies, it's, exactly. it's worth watching. And, it, and you know, there's great actors and many drivers in it. And Ian Holm and yeah. it's Isabella Rossellini. It's a very. It's a really good movie. But oh yeah, by the way, Isabella Rossellini. God damn, she is perfect. Mean, the fastball. She's great. That 1996 Isabella Rossellini. It's her in her zone. Yes, in her zone. Um, but you're you're completely right, and it's also. It's frankly a pretty punk rock movie. I mean, the whole conceit is about authenticity and doing things your way. DIY, and, brother. Yeah, and 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 Tony Shalhoub's character. I don't know if he's necessarily the Ian MacKay of the food world, but like he's doing something. He's he's committed to his vision. And he's like, doing who, it his way. Who who doesn't want to be a part of that? Well, that was you know the 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 perfect um, entree, uh, and we'll, we'll, we will call it the timpano. Uh, let's have dessert. Let's have you know, and this is this is perfect. Everybody's going to know this. Everybody understands it. And knows why this this movie's on the list. The last movie on the list is Goodfellas. Goodfellas is the sugar blast, right? Yes. Goodfellas is the most purely enjoyable movie to watch on earth over and over again. That's <laughs> I mean, my take. That's my is, hardest. It take. is the ultimate in rewatchables. It is the ultimate rewatchable. Maybe maybe it'll be an episode on a re, on the rewatchables one day. Until then, um, you know, I think seeing a man in prison slice garlic with a razor blade. Like changed the way that I saw movies. <laughs> like that was the most specific, beautiful detail in the world, and that says everything you need to know about the way that, that movie thought about telling its story. That, that that's a, a, a wonderful. I, I never thought about it uh, that way. It does capture that particular attention to detail that made Goodfellas in the moment an absolute effing revelation. Like. How can we possibly do another mafia movie? Well, the way to do it is to make it so effing real. Yeah, uh, and and you give know, us it, the details. It, it, exactly right. I mean, the Sunday gravy, the entire experience of them in jail making the Sunday gravy. It makes me want to go have some Sunday gravy right now. Hopefully, not in jail. You know, I <laughs> I I grew up um, as I said on Long Island, and Nicholas Pelleggi, who wrote the book Wise Guy that Goodfellas is based on, is from Long Island. I knew his family well. They were a real class. Classic Long Island Italian family, mm. and you know it doesn't. You don't have to just be in prison to learn how to do these things. Like you observe some of those ticks, and th- those guys in that movie felt real because they were real. You know that that story is amazingly um, accurate and like tactile. You yes. felt like you could. Yes. You felt like you could touch that food. You could put your your fi- your index finger in, in that sauce. I you know, smell that sauce. And you know some of that is Scorsese being a genius, and some of it is it being a, an amazing script and the right cast, but. Food is a connective organ to life. And like that movie, while heinous at times and scary and complicated and um, furiously paced, just hits these little tiny notes of life. I was so happy to have you put it on the menu uh, because it's not what anybody would necessarily think of as a food movie. 
but it is the perfect end for today's version of food movies. Now, look, you're coming back. Cool. Because there are there are more than just five food movies out there, I'm pretty sure. This is it. This but, was this was the only five. <laughs> this, this menu that you gave us today on House of Carbs. Delightful. Thank you so much for coming on. Joe, it was my pleasure. Awesome. All right, my thanks to the editor-in-chief, Sean Fennessy. That will be a recurring segment on the House of Carbs because there are many more than five movies, outstanding food movies, for the hungry people. So we'll hit some more of those with Sean as the season develops. Coming up next, food news with Juliet Littman, of course. But before we get to food news, how about a word from our good friends at Rudy's Barbershop? Podcast pals, are you still using the same shower products that you did in high school with scents like forest blast and arctic thunder explosion? Oh my. Leave those hypermasculine brands behind and upgrade your routine with Rudy's Barbershop. Since 1993, Rudy's has been the authority on effortless style with 29 shops across the country. They are the original modern barbershop and have cut the heads of folks from some of the most outstanding music this country has seen, like the Nirvana, the Pearl Jam, the Daft Punk, and the Macklemore Now, my friends, they are bringing 25 years of experience to a line of hair and body products that smell great and work effortlessly. GQ, Esquire, Men's Health are all raving about the shampoo, conditioner, and the body wash. Rudy's Pomades makes styling super easy no matter your hair type. I could use a little pomade. No more deliberating in the aisles of the stores. These are your new go-tos. And all of Rudy's products made right here in the USA, never tested on animals. And they use only the best ingredients available. And to top it all off, Rudy's is a longtime ally of the LGBTQ community and works with partners like the LGBTQ Center and the It Gets Better Project to donate shower products to local shelters. To learn more, my podcast pals, visit rudysbarbershop.com that is r-u-d-y-s barbershop.com they're so confident that you are going to love their products they're offering the house of carbs listeners 25% off your first order from Rudy's website with the promo code carbs go to rudysbarbershop.com enter promo code carbs and get yourself 25% off enjoy the Great smells. All right, podcast pals, you know how we do it. On the line right now, Juliet Littman, managing editor at The Ringer and host, co-host, guest on many, many, many podcasts among The Ringer Podcast Network. Hi, Juliet. Hi, House. How are you? I'm awesome. I'm ready for some food news. Okay. It's Labor Day, Labor Day weekend when we are recording this. Uh, I don't. Some of some of these stories have some some labor themes to them, but that's not. <laughs> we don't. Themes are not an important part of House of Carbs. No. I mean, we only we don't really need need a theme for for the crazy stories that we encounter. Let's start with something a little um, positive and relevant which is 
uh, you know, our thoughts and um, dollars go to the, everyone living in Houston, everyone suffering in Houston. And uh, I donated to a food bank yesterday, which, the Houston Food Bank, which I, I hope helps people. Um, yeah. And right now, I just want to talk about Chick-fil-A for a second. So um, one couple in Houston uh, was trapped in their home and they ordered some Chick-fil-A. And uh, then they were rescued by a Chick-fil-A worker on jet ski. So that's a pretty amazing story. Yeah, so tons of Harvey heroes. And we're going to be hearing these stories, obviously, you know, for for the days and weeks to come. But this one obviously jumped off the page at us because it is Chick-fil-A, which, as everybody knows, is near and dear to my heart. And I was uh, so impressed by the... Uh, wherewithal of the customer who said who wanted a couple uh, uh, items. I, I think he ordered chicken yes. burrito, which the order which, the order was yeah. two grilled chicken burritos with the extra egg and a boat. So that's the thing: the chicken burrito, grilled chicken burrito for breakfast. I, that that's not something that I've really cracked the code on. I have to confess, <laughs> that's not one that I've done. But right, he finished his order, and then he said, "And by the way, I, it would also be great if we could get a boat." And then the folks at Chick-fil-A who took his order, the woman apparently, uh, maybe an assistant manager there or something, had her, her, her husband or her loved one get the, the family boat and head on over there. And not only did they send the boat, but I they apparently had some other uh, Chick-fil-A folks over there with jet skis because they couldn't fit everybody and everything onto the boat. So they, they had a whole Chick-fil-A force. Um, show up at the doorstep um, for these folks and transport them to higher ground. Pretty amazing. That's awesome. So shout out to this this Chick-fil-A. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Big time Harvey hero. Yes. Good times. Love it. Um, also in the world of transportation, though, certainly much less serious. Yeah. Um, there's a story this week about how Domino's, the beloved pizza chain, and Ford are going to test self-driving pizza delivery cars. Um it was just announced that in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where the University of Michigan is, uh, customers will have the option to accept pizza deliveries from a Ford Fusion hybrid autonomous research vehicle. This is a story from TheVerge.com. The car won't be completely self-driving, but uh, at the last 50 feet, the ex- customer experience will be like a through with a robot, basically. So it's like it's a it's a partial robot delivery. But the point is, um, it's like a a research endeavor so that they that Ford and Domino's can get ahead of the self-driving cars uh, craze in general. So that way they can uh, observe what works and what doesn't work and hopefully be for them, I guess. And for, for Domino's lovers, be ahead of ahead of the autonomous car craze, which yeah. I'm like a little skeptical of. But that's besides well, this the is point. the thing. I, I have mixed feelings about this story. So in the first place, speaking of Labor Day, speaking of Labor I, Day, I wonder about. You know the jobs. impact on food delivery jobs exactly. Yeah, uh, and I I don't know. Maybe this is a, a worth a, a, an interview on House of Carbs. Maybe we get somebody that does food delivery, um, either like a you know a full time gig or a part time gig, like Postmates or uh, DoorDash or one of those guys, sure. the caviar folks. Uh, and I, I'd like some insight into like how the job is. Do they like the job? Is it a job that they intended to sort of continue with? Before I weigh in and, and criticize, you know, this autonomous uh, vehicle stuff for taking away jobs, I don't know whether or not food delivery jobs are jobs that that people, 
you know, care care to do, or if it's just a stepping stone job. But that's another conversation for another day. It's true. I will say Domino's impresses me as a brand. They yes. are certainly not unimpeachable. There's certainly things you could um, have problems with. But in terms of like customer experience, they are very forward thinking. Like they um, they did a rebrand a couple of years ago. And I think in general, like they're just really popular with millennials. Um, and I understand oh. why. It's because they they think about the customer and like sort of keeping ahead of what what their demographic is is in tuned with, basically. So this is a great segue into the observation that I had in mind also. Um, I think that they do the very best job in terms of customer service yeah. of letting you know. Um, you know, h- how your delivery is coming. I find their um, little uh, the color-coded... Yeah, the pizza tracker. I find that to be an incredibly effective tool. And I, and I love it. And I love how they use first names for the people that are involved in the process of, of preparing the food. You know, they name Eddie took your order. Yeah. Uh, J- Jeremiah is preparing your, your pizza. Elise is, is on her way. You know, I, I like very much that that personalizing, and I find the pizza tracker to be extremely um, reliable. Yeah, it's, very it's accurate. A, it, very accurate, exactly. Now, the thing that I so I don't love Domino's pizza, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, it's it's great in a pinch. It is what I get on Super Bowl out of kind of a, an old, you know, it feels like like tradition to order Domino's on the sure. Super Bowl. Maybe the most kind of, you know, American thing to do. Um, but I don't, it's not my go-to when I'm craving pizza. So uh, what what I like very much though is is what you just mentioned the innovation the forward thinking and I'm happy to let them attempt to conquer this autonomous delivery thing by way of the scale and the resources that they possess because what I'm personally very very interested in and hoping will come in online you know in the next half decade or so is being able to order delicacies from the restaurants around sure. the DMV and I want you know I want the papri shot from Rasika and then I want you know um some some delicious um uh, uh, I'm, I'm some delicious buns from Maketo and, you know, wonderful shrimp cocktail from wherever. Like I want to customize my order and have the, the car go around to my places and then show up with it. Now I understand how extra that is. That's a word the kids use, I've heard. Yeah, so That's I, a, it might be out of vogue, but at one point they were used saying extra. That's correct. Oh, what, what, is, what is that? What is the way? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Who cares? Um but I, you know, this this idea of, and I, and I would be satisfied with just one restaurant that I like, you know, being able to ride the coattails of, of this effective autonomous car thing. But I'm very happy to let Domino's and Ford try and conquer it and, and open it up to the masses. Yeah. They, do do the work and hopefully we'll benefit. That's it. Um, here in California, we've got some beef to discuss. <laughs> There's always beef to discuss in California. Um, in and out the beloved burger chain, is suing Smashburger, which is based in Denver. So it's kind of like a, a Colorado versus California story. I love this story because I love a good uh, argument. This one is litigious. And what is the Orange County Register has reported that in and out is suing Smashburger over the u- Smashburger's use of the terms Triple double and the smash burger triple double. Um, that's just like which is their version of a burger with 
uh, I think, three patties. Yeah. And the reason it's too close is, quote, since at least as early as 1963, In-N-Out has continuously used its registered double-double trademark in connection with hamburger sandwiches and interstate commerce since at least as early as 1966. In-N-Out has continuously used its registered triple-triple trademark. So I am just really impressed by the foresight of the people in and out to trademark these things so long ago. Like, great job. That's so funny. Uh, I was um, wondering how you were going to come out on this. I, too, um, because I'm a lawyer by training, I don't practice law anymore. Thank God. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I was worried about, you know, taking the side of the the plaintiff here. I know. I think in and out. Um, has a good point. Here's the thing that I uh, wonder about Smashburger. It's kind of a black mark on Smashburger. Hey, Smashburger, go nuts. Make your triple-decker cheeseburger with three patties and three slices of cheese. Come up with an effing name yeah, for it. Totally. Yeah, I mean, how hard is, is is it to come up with a creative name for that wonderful, uh, uh, you know, stack of, of meat and cheese? A, a, a burger of that stature deserves some creative thinking. Don't try and coattail off of the In-N-Out. And by the way, In-N-Out, to their credit, they go after everybody. They yeah. sued a place in, in Maryland um, for uh, calling something wild style. Um, Protect your brand. I, I, I don't know. I think I, yeah. I, I, I too, I am not a lawyer, but I, my brother, my mom, my dad are all lawyers. So I've certainly been privy to many legal conversation. And I think you should protect your property. I, I don't know. I don't have a problem with it. I'm with, right there with you. The challenge that, that they're essentially putting out there is, hey, other people that make cheeseburgers, Think, get a little more creative. Do it better. Don't yeah. try and ride, aren't you? Go do better. That's exactly right. I also just want to so, say, I just want to specify that the trip, the Smashburger triple double is also like, uh, just misleading. I expected more. It's two patties and three pieces of cheese. Like I almost two pieces of cheese should be standard in my opinion. Like one is often not enough. So I don't really think you should get like bonus points for three pieces of cheese on two patties. I don't really care for three pieces of cheese, to be honest with really? you. I'm more interested in the burger part. I don't want the extra part to be the cheese. I want the extra part to be the burger right. Give, well, or you some want... other meat. Sure. Absolutely. I'm, I agree. Okay. So we're, we totally agree on this one. That feels great. I'm, gl- I'm glad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, one more for you. A quick one. Quickish. Are you familiar with Italy? I know the idea. I know the proprietor. I love the concept. Um Let's tell the story. Italy is like um, a very high end, not very. It's like a it's like a fancy food court that has a grocery and multiple restaurants, and is is kind of already like an amusement park. The experience is really fun. Um, it's really quite unique. And I actually there's one in New York, which is the one I've been to. But they also have a there's one in Tokyo. There's a bunch in Italy. There's now one in Chicago. Um, it's cool. I I, I just how how would you describe it? I think you got it right. It is kind of uh, a small scale um, food amusement uh, adventure. Yeah. Like you can go in there and do, you know, let your 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 fly your foodie flag with glee. I mean, you don't have to be shy about any of it. And wherever your your interest may take you, if you're you want to do a little cooking class, yeah, you know, check the calendar. You can hook up with a cooking class. You want to go taste some uh, delicious uh, olive oil and some vinegar combinations? Go talk to the dude behind the counter and get it hooked up. Or if you just want to go eat. 
go have a delicious, uh, you know, quickly prepared Italian meal. Yeah, or like you can also buy pasta. You can buy pasta sauce. Like they, it's also like an Italian market. It's really cool. Um, yeah. And the people behind this, behind Italy, are taking it to the next level, and they're opening Fico Italy World in Bologna, Italy, and on November fifteenth, twenty seventeen. That is very soon. It's going to be twenty acres. And there's six rides, like you have at Disney World. There's cooking classes, there's restaurants, there's demos. It's like a full-on food amusement park that costs $106 million to make. And it's called, as I said, FICO Italy World. I'm I'm quite excited. I watched the three-minute video um, showing you what it has. And it's like they have a, a large, you know, they have like fields for farming and for growing stuff. But then they also have the rides and the restaurants and they have like food labs. It's it's it looks really cool. If I'm going to be in Italy again, I, I would try to go. I think it's worth like a, a day visit. A day. You know what One I mean? One day. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Tops. Uh, I, I don't know how much of, you know, the, you know, the cooking class or the, I would try a couple of the rides. I would obviously be interested in, in the eating. I'm glad that they're getting this off the ground in Italy um, because I have, and then especially find compelling the, um, the growing of the, um, you know, elements of your delicious meal right there on property. That's very interesting. That's cool. Um, I just wonder, like, here's the thing. I'm in Orlando, Florida, as we are taping this, Juliet. How apropos. I'm inside the fence of the Disney property, and uh, I have to say, I probably should have put this out to all. I should have belly sourced this. Where Where does one go eat? When when you when one is in Orlando, there's an Art Smith restaurant down here. Morimoto has a place as well. Uh, this is over the Disney Springs area, and Epcot has this Taste of the World, right. you know, kind of food court uh, experience. And I actually uh, visited that and took it in. But I, I should have asked where one goes to experience. I don't even know if there's uh, is there an Orlando cuisine. Is there a is there a representation of Florida cuisine down here? I didn't do any research because I was basically just. Preparing Preparing myself for survival. They, uh, three have, days of Disney and one day at a Universal. Do they have turkey legs down there? Because they have that at, at a Disneyland here in California. I did not run across a turkey leg, and I guarantee you, if they, if I had, I would I would have taken one down. I love a turkey leg. <laughs> we got to get you to Disneyland then. Um, I don't I guess know. So. I don't know about the Orlando food scene, but I was kind of imagining Epcot if it was only for food and in Italy when I was hearing about Italy World. So it's right, a, an app and a little more. The one thing about Epcot, it could use a little more. It's a little closed in. I wanted it to be a little more. I want to be now. I understand it's hot as hell down here. It's always hot as hell down here, um, but I do like the out outdoor experience of eating. I don't, you know, the that al fresco. If I'm going to do that tour of the world, and I found it, you know, a little too much indoor um, for my taste. But look, I'm I'm not no reason to quibble. Yeah, I think it seems cool. I would check it out for one day, one day only. Yeah, one day only in in Bologna. Bologna, let's do it. Let's. It's not a part of not a part part of Italy. I what I wanted to go to, but hey, I I love Italy. I'm open to anything. We'll put it on the list. You know that they're going to serve alcohol. That's the most important part. Duh, there's got to be wines, Italy after all. Hey, Juliet, by the way, we have been getting incredible feedback. Last week's show, we asked the hungry people and the thirsty people to send us their best stories about, you know, 
I, I guess I can use the word smuggle. Yeah. It's it's accurate. Smuggling alcohol into their sporting event of, of choice. And we'd be getting uh, unbelievable feedback on the House of Carbs fans at gmail.com email. And I think you and I, uh, next week's uh, food news or an upcoming food news, a very, very soon to be food news. We're going to get on and talk a little bit about um, what the thirsty people out there have been doing to get alcohol into their their uh, gaming experience. I can't wait. Keep on, keep on sending them. Thanks for having me, House. Always, Juliet. Enjoy Disney World. <laughs> One more day to survive. All right, my friends, coming up next... An excellent chat with The Ringer's own Amanda Dobbins about the Houston's Hillstone iconic upscale American franchise. I can't tell you how many dates I took to Houston's Hillstones. It was Houston's here in the DMV. But before we get to that chat, how about a nice word from our friends at Lisa? What if, podcast pals, you could give back while you slept? Lisa is an innovative direct-to-consumer online mattress band brand that is also socially conscious. Driven by the mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody, for every 10 mattresses Lisa sells, they donate one to a shelter through their 110 program. Not to mention, Lisa also plants one tree for every mattress sold and donates 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. But best of all, Lisa's patented universal adaptive feel is designed for all types of sleepers and features three premium foam layers, including two-inch Avena, that's trademarked A-V-E-N-A, Foam top layer for cooling and breathability. Two-inch middle layer memory foam for body contouring and pressure relief. And six-inch on the bottom dense core support foam for durability and structure for sleepers of all sizes. Available online in the U.S., the U.K., Canada, and Germany or you can get yourself, if you're in the New York City area, to the Lisa Dream Gallery. This 100% American-made mattress ships compressed in a box to your door so you can save a trip to the store. No wonder Lisa is a Forbes Top 20 startup to watch. Try a Lisa mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk-free, my pals, with free shipping as always get $100 off that is a lot off when you go check the prices on these Lisa mattresses 100 bucks off is a great deal get 100 bucks off when you go to lisa.com slash carbs that's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash carbs again l-e-e-s-a dot com slash carbs all right, podcast peoples, we are very pleased to have as a guest on today's show, Amanda Dobbins, the ringer's own deputy, deputy, deputy. That's a hard word at this hour of the morning. Can I just say culture editor? It's culture easy. editor at the ringer. Why? Yeah, deputy is weird. Culture editor at the ringer. It's easier, yeah. Co-host of Jam Session podcast with our beloved Juliet Littman. I am. That's right. 
Uh, you are here on House of Carbs. I won't subject you to the whole thing. That's great. To talk about Hillstone. And I have to tell you, when I saw this pop up as a thing for us to have a conversation about, I was intrigued because I'm familiar with the Houston's restaurant chain. Uh, they were uh, at least four or five of those in the, in the Washington, D.C. area. They seem to have moved on. You can't really go to Houston's in D.C. anymore, in the DMV. You know, I was just looking at the map to yeah. figure out whether you had familiarity with Houston slash Hillstones, which we'll come back to. And I noticed the same thing, and I thought that was really weird. It seems like a very D.C.-friendly restaurant. It, it is and was. In fact, the one in Georgetown used to be the, uh, a real favorite of uh, the local uh, professional basketball team. The players on that team loved the Houstons yes. in Georgetown. Yes. A funny fact, I went to a Houston's restaurant last night uh, for research. Oh, my. Um, it was the last one in the L.A. area that I had not been to, so I managed to convince uh, people to go. But before that, Bill Simmons had said to me, you know, Houston's is a NBA favorite. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm I'm not like a sports expert, so I didn't totally know that. Uh, we went last night and there was Russell Westbrook sitting in front of the restaurant in a, in a bucket hat on his phone. I'm not sure whether he was actually eating at the restaurant. I never saw him go in, but he was definitely in the waiting area just hanging out. In Los Angeles. Yeah, last night. Just doing his Houston's thing. Yeah. On a Wednesday night. Exactly. That's how we get down. Now let's let's go all the way back. Let's okay. do the origin story. Okay. So I, I think we should clarify now. Houston's and Hillstones are the same thing. Okay. Which is very it was founded as Houston's in 1997, 1977, I'm sorry, in Nashville, Tennessee. And there are now 51 restaurants, I believe I counted uh, or maybe I saw that on Wikipedia, which is lazy counting, um, that are like under the restaurant chain. And so many of them go by Houston's. And I grew up in Atlanta going to Houston's. So I, that's how I know it as well. Um, there are some that are called Hillstones. And this is not confirmed, but the theory behind that is that they switched the New York restaurants from Houston's to Hillstones around 2008, nine, so okay. that they didn't have to post the calorie counts. <laughs> because, you know, if you have a certain number of restaurants, then you're considered a chain restaurant. And in New York, you have to put the calorie count of every food on the menu. And Houston's definitely didn't want to do that. All right. I love so, it. But now they're actually, like I said, there are 51 restaurants and they're known by a bunch of different names. Here are a couple. Bandera, which I've never been to. Yeah. There are some in California. Rutherford Grill, which is apparently in Rutherford, California. R&D Kitchen, which is apparently in Santa Monica, and I believe Dallas, Cherry Creek Grill in Denver, um, and then South Beverly Grill is the one that I went to last night. There's a South Beverly Grill, oh. a Hillstones, and a Houston's all in Los Angeles. And their menus are 80% the same, I would say. All right. So look, the Wood Woodmont Grill is on here, and I believe the Woodmont Grill is still in the DC. It's in DC. Yeah, it's in Bethesda, Maryland. I'm, okay. I'm nearly 100% sure. I was sure. just looking, I, you know, I might have gotten that wrong. I was just looking at the. No, I map. get it. I understand. It just was a weird oh, thing. Oh, Maryland, yes. Houston's was beloved. Is beloved. It was is beloved, beloved by me. It, beloved by many people. And I never really understood why it disappeared. Uh, from It was a kind of a integral part of my upbringing and raising. It was mine as well. It was a special place to go to, though. It wasn't, we didn't go like ordinary course. It was like a kind of a special dinner. Yeah, well, you know, it's not, it's a chain restaurant, but 
Uh, it is on the more expensive side of chain restaurants. You can't go every day. Like I would take dates there. That's a great date spot. I agree with this. I as a child would beg to go because they had these crispy chicken fingers and they put the, so they put the chicken fingers on the salad. That's yes. like kind of how they're on the menu. But if you were a kid and you knew what was up, you could go and just get a basket of chicken fingers. Yep. So for like report, good report cards, or, I mean, I don't actually think that a report card earned a Houston's trip, but something better than that. I was like, I'm going to Houston's and I'm getting a whole basket of chicken fingers. Uh, so it was very important to me. And then I think because I liked Houston so much, it was kind of my first real job. It, oh, when I was 17 years old, I was a hostess at Houston's in Atlanta. How about it? Because I think that was like the only place that I really wanted to work because I liked it so much. <laughs> and I was like free chicken fingers and free spinach artichoke dip. Was it free? No, you yeah. got like a not that good discount <laughs> and they were really strict about it. Come on. I know. I think if you worked kind of if you worked two shifts in a row, oh. then they would buy your lunch yeah. in the middle. OK, yeah. It's so funny you said spinach and artichoke dip. I know that I'm I'm derailing us for just a quick minute, yeah. but uh, my go-to order at Houston's was, of course, the spinach and artichoke dip of and course. then the ribs. I would get the full rack of ribs. You know, I still never time. had the ribs. Oh! And I almost got them last night. Oh, my. But so. If I'd known you were going, I would have said, I Get the ribs. You know, no, you could the ta- get the ribs for the table. You don't have to eat the whole rack. That's yourself. true. There were two of us ribs though. For that's the table. a lot. Oh, <laughs> so that's not. Yeah, that's not ribs for the table. I need to go for. So I've never had the ribs. My what's interesting about, I said the menus are about eighty percent similar, but there are some regional differences. For example, they do not have the chicken fingers in California. Oh. And I asked about this, and the people, the very nice people at the Pasadena Houston's, told me they had taken the chicken fingers off the menu like. 10 to 15 years ago. So that's, <laughs> a, that's a long gone dream. I don't, you know, because it's California. They, they're the stated reason for the different names and the slightly slight menu variations is that they're like trying to appeal to the local. Okay. So like, for example, last night I went to the Beverly Hills, Houston's known as South Beverly Grill. And I got the veggie burger, which I think is like the best veggie burger in America. Oh, um, but instead of the normal soy glaze that they put on the veggie burger, they did like avocado and tomato for kind of a California Beverly Hills of, of health twist. Of course they did. I got to oh. tell you, the soy glaze is better. Okay. You know, right, right. Houston's needs to stick to what it knows. That makes a lot of sense yeah. to me. Of course, of course, of course. Now, uh, w- w- help me understand this. This it's a it's a national Tour de force, the Hillstone. Yes. And it it appeals to people of kind of all walks of life, wildly successful people, people with, you know, um, very accomplished food backgrounds. Yes. uh, NBA stars. Help us understand what that appeal is, you think. So I think it's about kind of the consistency and the high level of food that they are able to uh, produce at a consistency. The spinach artichoke dip. In Beverly Hills is the same as the one in Pasadena, is the same as in Atlanta, in Maryland, in New York, in Kansas City, where I went once at a wedding. I had a lovely lunch at Houston's in Kansas City. Um, so you know exactly what you're going to get. Yes. And it's really good. Like the food is really good, uh, but it's also just they manage to keep it the same everywhere. And then there's also a service component to Houston's that is really nice. They are very adamant about good service and making you have a great time and making sure your booth is comfortable and that you have everything you need. So it's just a known quantity everywhere you go. You know that it's going to be a very, very nice experience. I've never had a bad Houston's experience. Yeah, I'm with you. It, it is funny the niche that they fill 
it is a chain restaurant. Yeah. Um, and, you know, many of the attributes that, we, that we're kind of celebrating here are true of lots of chain restaurants, right? Yes. The distinguishing factor to me of the Houston's experience, maybe there's kind of three elements to it. First of all, it's always like impeccably clean inside of yes. Houston's, in my experience. Yes. So when you walk in, you never get the, the feeling that it's been well trod, that it's run down, that, you know, you never find a seat where, where you know, there's a worn spot on it, any Precisely. of that kind of vibe. Um, I also uh, very much like the the uh, aspect that you just described about the service. They, they are, and I think it's part of the mission statement, right? It is. And having worked there, I can tell you they take it oh, very seriously. Yeah. I, I mean, I was 17 years old, so I think that they made extra care to teach me not to be an asshole. But, um, <laughs> you know, so I was I was a hostess and that meant and there was usually an hour wait at Houston's I, where I, I worked. I'm, in I'm familiar with There this. was an hour wait last night on a Wednesday night in Beverly Hills. I don't know what's going on, they, I, but people love it. So yeah. there are no buzzers. Uh, you were not allowed to stand at the hostess desk and call anyone, like, you know, yell, like, Joe, Joe, that was not allowed you ha- because huh. that would be, that wasn't an intimate enough experience. So you had to take notes in a code that, would not be offensive should the person read it and memorize who each person was and then be able to go and say, how's your tables ready? And like, remember them. And they were adamant about that. There was no cutting corners and you would get in serious trouble if you forgot someone, if you went up to someone with the wrong name. Um, And that, I mean, that's just the hostess experience, but they were militant about it for servers, for everyone. Now at your restaurant, where were people permitted to congregate as they waited for an hour without a buzzer? Yes. So the the bar at this point was yeah. first come, first serve. Okay. Last night at the South Beverly Grill, you had to wait for the bar, which I just I didn't I didn't love that. I gotta be honest. <laughs> um I would say if I had to rank the LA Houston's restaurants, it would be Santa Monica, Pasadena, Beverly Hills. Okay. Um, but in Atlanta, you could wait at the bar. There was a big lobby. Then, you know, just a lot of teenagers in the parking lot waiting for their chicken fingers. I mean, and me yeah. with my date exactly. waiting for our spinach and yeah. choke dip. And I might all, I might get a hickory burger if I didn't want to scare the poor young lady yeah. right out of the box. I like the, the chicken sandwich is a new addition and it's my favorite. Oh, I don't, I'm not familiar with the chicken sandwich. Yeah, it sandwich. has a nice, uh, sp- like spicy coleslaw. It's yes. vinegar based, I think. Um but really compliments the chicken well, and some Swiss. Well, this walks us into yeah. what I think is the third kind of distinguishing element that takes this chain, particular chain, a step above. You know, we have the service, we have the the cleanliness, the, the experience, and what you described in terms of the attention to the little details. Yes. I, there is also something to the fact that the ingredients seem to be relentlessly fresh. It's very true. And I spend, a, I have spent a lot of time wondering about this and I am afraid I don't, they don't let you back in the freezer. So I don't have any kind of <laughs> Not inside even back information. In your day, back in the day, they didn't, you I could sneak back there. Maybe they did, but honestly, I was probably not paying enough attention because again, <laughs> I was a teenager. Um, yeah. I agree. It, I don't understand how they managed to keep everything exactly the same and also make it feel like it didn't come out of a freezer and freezers must be a part of this at some point, right? Of course, of course. It's the only way to maintain this level of. Well, as we learned Sameness. from from David Chang, the very best way for French fries to be delivered is, right. is frozen. So yeah. we want we we know at least the French fries are coming yeah. that way, right? Um, but it's you're exactly right. It never tastes like that. It's extremely good. 
it's it is extremely good. It it manages to be a chain that delivers that an upscale um, experience, and it's been mm-hmm. around long enough now forty years, yes. uh, seventy seven to twenty seventeen to have become, and it's it's prevalent enough, right? It's in big biggish cities. Yeah, I would say it's mostly it's in the south, mm-hmm. and then I think there's one in Chicago, one in Denver, a couple in Denver, and then on the east coast. Yeah, sure. Um, um, and so we, we do we agree that the things that we are finding, um, you know, the the um, these appealing elements, these attributes, have to be the things that make it such a, a, a broad appeal. I think so. I think, you know, it's funny. I was talking with my husband about this last night who really likes Houston's, but is not maniacal about it the way I yeah. am. Like, it's a yeah. holiday when I get to go to Houston's, which makes no sense because I've been probably hundreds of times at this point, including uh-huh. when I worked there. I mean, it was just kind of like, I don't, it was, I like this, but I don't really get it. And I do think my answer was a lot of people really do find it comforting and like knowing that what they're going to get. Um, and that they're going to like what they are going to get. And there's enough, you know, there's time for experimentation, but sometimes you just want the best version of something you like. I think that's right. Yeah. And, and, the, and you know, something that you encountered the first time, probably when you were like a teenager, or if, you know, your parents took you there as a kid. Absolutely. For me, it's a nostalgia factor also. Yeah. Uh, the, the same thing is true of me. It would be uh, a crime to not also mention the French dip when we're talking about this yes. restaurant. Now, do they... Do they permit French dip out here on the West Coast? The French dip is on every single menu that I have seen. I haven't clicked through all of them. It's good to hear that, you know. Every single menu that I have looked at, the French, because the French dip is their signature. It's a legendary uh, dish. I mean, we can't, I have my personal favorites, the burger and the ribs and obviously spinach and artichoke dip. Uh, every single time I walk into the Houston's, but you can't talk about Houston's and not talk about the French dip. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. That's right. It sets a standard. It does. I mean, it doesn't purport to be something that it's not, you know, it's not delivering you, uh, you know, you don't feel like you're being transported um, to France or anything like that. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) But it is, it is in its own stead wonderful. Can I make two more menu recommendations? Please do. You beat me to the punch. Okay. So if you are in the South or anywhere where there is, I know they're still in the menu in Atlanta. It's the club salad Mm. with the crispy chicken fingers, which is our personal Madeleine's. Uh, that is my order for lunch in Atlanta anytime. I The Thai noodle steak salad is very good, though I still think the crispy chicken sandwich is the way to go. If you have the veggie burger with the glaze, that's the way to go. Okay. And then I think the key lime pie is one of the underrated key lime pies in America. So this is this is a crucial area that I felt like we needed to touch on. <laughs> the desserts at Houston's. Are fantastic. Are that's that's a reason you have you can't not have dessert, and no. that's what also made it kind of perfect for date night. Yes, right. I mean, it, you you bought yourself, you waited an hour, but then you it was a full ninety minutes because it's the coursing the coursing out. Yeah, uh, and you you ensured yourself you were going to be able to put your very best foot forward. It's a great date. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Did you have a high success rate with it? Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the safest thing to say at this stage of life. Okay. 
Yes. Uh, I remember a hot fudge sundae. Am I? It's great. Yeah. Okay. They still I have it in Pasadena. Sure. And there's a was there a there was a there's brown a, the five nut brownie. Yes. yes. Okay. Great. See, With the ice cream. We're pulling it. There's a cobbler. Yeah. And there is an ice cream sundae at some locations. So they didn't have it last night in Beverly Hills, which was it's a bummer for me. I my I would switch between the five nut brownie and the hot fudge sundae. Yeah. It would be like you know the key lime pie. I just don't think it's enough attention because everyone's like, oh, I have this key lime pie that my you know grandmother made. I have one of those because I'm from Atlanta. Yes, yes. Um, I Their key lime pie is better than mine. Okay. It's fantastic. That's the they next time. They have the little graham cracker crumbles on the top. You, I, This is this inspiration. I am going to the Woodmont Grill. That's I'm going to take my wife. I've never been to uh, oh, that's so romantic. any Houston's uh, of so any sort. Houston's Woodmont. Yeah. And yeah, we'll, we'll bring on my little boy and we're going to have a family meal at the Woodmont Grill. I uh, can't wait. Amanda Dobbins, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was awesome. God bless America and God bless Houston. Amen. All right, my podcast peoples, that is it. We have done it. Another episode in the books. Thank you so much for the listen. Please keep up the outstanding belly sourcing. You can hit us up, especially at House of Carbs Fans at gmail.com. We've been getting a ton of outstanding suggestions on the topic of how to get your alcohol into those sporting events that may not want you to bring your alcohol into those events. And I promise we will be talking about some of those fantastic tales on one of these next couple episodes. Keep that outstanding input coming. Make sure to give us a review on iTunes and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We shall be back next week, of course, with the House of Carbs. But until then, let's stay hungry out there. <laughs>